Well, good morning again. My name is Ray Stewart. I'm the Connections Pastor here. So if you're visiting with us, I'm especially glad that you're here today, whether you're here in person or, or you're joining us online. Pastor Matt is away doing something crazy and insane. Uh, he's running a triathlon. So uh, you guys can pray for him, uh, both his body in recovery and his mind, uh, that he'll never do it again. No, I don't know. He's, um, so it's 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 good to be here. Um, I'm excited to have Morgan's parents with us this morning uh, to celebrate Abby's baptism. I'm extremely lucky, uh, and I recognize that for an amazing mother-in-law that I have. Uh, she loves people generously. Uh, she uh, models hospitality, and she absolutely uh, is able to convince you that she knows everything about anything, even when she doesn't have a clue. And so I have a great mother-in-law, and then... There's Morgan's dad, uh, who's sitting up here this morning. Morgan's dad and I have been in a struggle and in a battle uh, for the hearts of my kids for 16 years. Uh, it will be a battle that's it's still ongoing. Uh, we we bat- battle and for the hearts of our kids of whether our kids, my kids, are going to identify as University of Louisville fans or University of Kentucky fans. Uh, it's a it's a big struggle. It really is. And only a few other fan bases understand this, right? If you're UNC or Duke, then you get it. If you're Michigan, Ohio State, then you get it. Uh, if you're Yankees versus Red Sox, you know. Uh, of course, everybody is against the New England Patriots, so we all share that battle. But for 16 years, Donald and I have battled for the hearts of our kids, and he's had the advantage, right? He's had every advantage uh, in the way he, he's had more disposable income uh, to, uh, to spend, uh, he, he's got that special grandpa charm that kids absolutely adore, and his team's actually been better most of the time. So uh, I do have one, one kid wearing red this morning. Uh, he didn't even know this was an example, but that's his favorite color. Uh, and he has one of our daughters, and the other one flips back and forth. So um, we love them all. But kidding aside, because if I don't stop, he's going to call his lawyer on me, and I'll be in trouble. That's his other, one of his other daughters. Um, but no, I am blessed to have her uh, parents as in-laws. Glad that you guys are here. Thank you uh, for that. But how do we identify ourselves, right? It's a key question. We can identify whether people are sports fans based on the logos that they wear on their shirts. Uh, we can identify where kids go to school. If you have a proud parent bumper sticker on your car, uh, we can identify your, your sanity level, teenage boys. If you wear uh, shorts in freezing temperatures, we, we, we know what you like. And so we identify people based on what they wear or the activities that they're involved in. And there are lots of ways that we do that. But today, as we continue in our series of loving our neighbors, we're going to look at a key identifying mark of faith. How are we identified as being followers of Christ? And that identifying mark, that distinctive mark, is going to be how we love one another. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to read uh, two short passages. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you that you are a gracious and forgiving Father. Lord, that while all of us have messed up and all of us have fallen short, you love us. You stand ready to forgive us of all sins. God, and you don't leave us to walk this life in our own strength or our own wisdom, but you send us the Holy Spirit to live within us 
Lord, that we might walk with you. And you've given us your word, and I pray that your word uh, would not return void this morning. Lord, that you would encourage us and challenge us as we look at it. And Lord, as we, as we love you, help us to love one another. Let's pray that your spirit would be present this morning. It's in your name. Amen. So we're going to look at our key sermon passage uh, for our series out of Luke chapter 10, and then we're going to look at the passage for this morning out of John 13. Uh, These will be on the screen. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 27. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. This is Jesus. Put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He asked him, this is Jesus asking the, the lawyer, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So the context, right? The context that Matt talked, Pastor Matt talked about two weeks ago was that uh, this lawyer was coming to Jesus and he was trying to trap Jesus, right? He, he's trying to trap Jesus and get Jesus to say something that is in contrast or contradictory to the law. And so he comes to Jesus and he says, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds by asking the lawyer the question, well, what does the law say? What does the scripture say? And so the lawyer correctly answers in verse 27. Uh, he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. And then he quotes, uh, which is love the Lord your God with all your being, right? And Leviticus 19, verse 18, love your neighbor as yourself. And so in having the lawyer answer the question, Jesus is having the lawyer, or in essence, come to grips with the fact that he cannot perfectly love God with all of his heart, with all of his mind, with all of his strength, with all of his being, and he can't love his neighbor as himself. He's setting a standard that's impossible, and the lawyers answered that. But what is impossible for man is possible for God. And so Jesus, being fully God and fully man, was able to perfectly meet those standards. He faced temptations just as we face temptations. He faces hardship and challenge, but he did not sin. He, didn't, he lived a perfect, sinless life. And through his death on the cross and his resurrection three days later, he offers us eternal life as a gift for believing in him and confessing him as Lord. So while we cannot perfectly achieve these two great commands that Jesus gave, he does call us to try. So let's look at the, uh, our passage for today, John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So let's first seek to understand the passage, and then afterwards we're going to seek to apply it to our lives. So some quick context in John chapter 13. This is the Last Supper, right? They're in the upper room. They're celebrating Passover. Jesus is with his closest disciples, Earlier in the chapter, in chapter 13, Jesus gets up from the table and he wraps a cloth around his waist and he washes the disciples' feet. And it it, it was unthinkable that the master, that their teacher, would humble himself to the point that he would get on the ground and he would wash their feet. Later at dinner in verse 21 and following, Jesus tells them that somebody is going to betray him. And Judas is later identified and Judas hurries out. 
Jesus is telling them in verse 21 and following through, uh, through verse 31 and 32 that Jesus, he's going to be betrayed, he's going to be arrested, he's going to be put on trial, and ultimately he's going to be hung on a cross to die. He's going to leave them. He's telling them that he's leaving them, that he's going to die on the cross, and that they cannot come with him. And then he says in verse 34, he says, I give you a new commandment, right? It's a new commandment I give to you. But the call to love one another is not new, right? The lawyer answered the question of Jesus in Luke chapter 10 to say, what does the law say or what does the scripture say? And he quotes Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, that Israel is called to love others like they love themselves, just as we are called. So this part is not new, that they are called to love. It's the same that we see in Luke chapter 10. But the call that Jesus is placing on his disciples is something higher and greater than just loving your neighbor as yourself, right? He's calling them to love to something that's harder and is a higher standard. The standard now is not how you love yourself. The standard now is how do I love you? You are to love your neighbor. You are to love one another as I, as Jesus, has loved us. So let's look at that. Right, first, we see that Jesus' love is the standard. Right? It's the standard by which we measure our success or failure. The media context of him being betrayed, of him being arrested and going to die, he's going to ra- be raised up on the cross and crucified. And in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, we're told that, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Right? This is how much Jesus has loved us. He loved us when we couldn't earn it. We couldn't be worthy or deserving of it. He chose to die for us. When we were helpless and hopeless, that is how much he loves us. In 1 John 3.16, we're told that by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. The King of kings and the Lord of lords left the majesty and the wonder and the glory of heaven to come and walk as a, or be born as a babe and to walk on this dirty and filthy earth. To live as we live, to face hunger and temptation and loss, and yet to resist sin completely and fully trust God perfectly in all things, even to the point of death on a cross. John chapter 15, verse 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And so Jesus' death on the cross is a higher standard, a higher calling than just loving our neighbors as ourselves. We are called to love as Jesus has loved us. It's a standard that he calls everyone to in John chapter 13, verse 34, when he says, you love one another just as I have loved you. But this standard, right, second point today is Jesus calls us to a love greater than we're incapable He calls us to a love that is greater than we are able to do, right? So loving one another or loving one another as ourselves, but now loving each other as Jesus has loved us, this is something that we cannot do. This is something that we are not capable of. It's something that's easy to say, right? Love your neighbor, love the person sitting next to you, in front of you, behind you. It's easy to say those things, but it's much harder in reality. And we all know that, right? We all know that. 
parents, it's hard. We know it's hard because it's hard to love children who track mud in throughout the house on your carpet, who don't clean their rooms or, or shut the front door when it's freezing outside or, or put their dishes away. Wives, you know this because it's hard to love a husband who seemingly never says thank you and offers to help. Husbands, we know it's hard because it's hard to love a wife who seemingly sets impossible standards. Kids, you know it's hard because it's hard to love parents who are constantly telling you what you are doing wrong and how you've messed up, but never acknowledging or saying that they have messed up and asking for your forgiveness. Friends, you know this is hard because as we look at the world, it's hard to love when the media and culture sets out to divide us in every way possible, that we need to scream and we need to be separated into even louder camps screaming, they are destroying our country. They are bad. They're evil. It's hard to love. Loving others is hard, and it's because people are sinners. So quick caveat, there's a great marriage book by Paul David Tripp. It said, what, did, what to expect? No. Yeah, what did you expect is the title of it. When you married a sinner, basically, what did you expect? You're not marrying Jesus, and so your spouse is not, is not perfect. It's a great book. I highly encourage, encourage you. Paul David Tripp. But every, you know, people are sinners, right? People are sinners. Everyone is born with a sinful nature. We have this desire and tendency to be self-focused, to selfish, selfishness and self-centeredness, to think of ourselves before and more than we should and over others. We are sinners through and through. Every single person in here is a failure and has not met the standard. It includes your spouse, it includes your children, your parents, your teachers, your coworkers, your friends, and your kids, and even Abby's grandmother has fallen short. I know it's hard to believe. It really is. This call, this command to love others as Jesus has loved us, Jesus knows it's impossible, and yet he gives it to us anyway. He knows we can't live up to it, and yet he gives it to us. It, he gives it to us not saying that you, how well you do this is dependent on how much he loves you. God is going to love you unconditionally. The breadth and depth of God's love for us is not dependent on how well we obey. It's not dependent on, on us earning favor with him. Our salvation and justification before God are not dependent on whether we fail at this command to love others as he has loved us. And yet he still calls us to it. He gives us a standard and he says, this is what I want you to do. I'm going to love you, but this is what I want you to do. He calls us to love, to love in a way that's sacrificial, that's costly, love others as better than ourselves, to think of the interests of others above ourselves, a love that forgives, especially when it's undeserved. We are saved and brought into a right, right relationship with God by grace through faith alone. And yet Paul urges in Romans chapter 6 for us to not use that grace as license or as reason for us to go on sinning, right? As not, not to use it as reason or license to, uh, to just say, well, hey, I'm going to fail anyway. I might as well not try. Paul says that is not what we should do, that because of grace, we have experienced the grace of God because we're not worthy of it or deserving of it. He's called us to love anyway, and we want to honor him. And I tell you this, it will be difficult. It is difficult. It is messy. It is costly to love 
others, to love your spouse, to love your kids, to love your parents, to love your friends, to love people in this room today or watching online. It is costly and messy and it is difficult, but it brings glory to God and it'll shine brightly in a dark world that needs it. So Jesus' love for us is our standard. Jesus calls us to a greater love than we are capable. And the reason for this call is because we are identified by our love for one another. Right? We are identified by our love for one another. Up until this point, Jesus' followers were identified by being with Jesus. Right? As they went around, as Jesus taught with authority, as he performed miracles, people could tell who was followers of Jesus because they were with him. Right? When, when Jesus was on trial and Peter was following, three times they were said, you were with the Galilean, weren't you? They recognized him because he had been with Jesus. But Jesus is leaving. Jesus is leaving them. And so he, he's saying, this is how you're going to be acknowledged. This is how you're going to be identified by something that is seemingly an even greater miracle than Jesus feeding the 5,000 is by people loving one another that have no reason to love one another. Even when it's extremely different, difficult. So let's take a look at the disciples real quick in understanding the passage, right? The disciples, this was hard for them. The disciples came from different backgrounds, right? They came from different backgrounds. They had fishermen. At least four of the disciples were fishermen, Andrew and Peter and James and John. One of the disciples, Matthew or Levi, uh, he goes by sometimes, was a tax collector. He worked for the Roman government who was oppressing the Jews. He was a tax collector. Simon the zealot uh, was a revolutionary. He was a zealot. He was trying to overturn the Roman government. And yet in their midst, you find the tax collector who was, who was supporting or holding up the government, and you find a zealot who was seeking to overturn the government before they met Jesus. And then later in the apostles, or later in the book of Acts, when Paul joins the apostles, Paul was a Pharisee. He was trying to kill them and put them in jail. He was persecuting them, and yet he is loved. It's an amazing thing to see people love that come from different backgrounds. They also had different personalities, right? Peter was bold and brash. He was strong-willed, right? When they came to arrest Jesus, Peter pulls out a sword, and he's going to fight 100 soldiers. Andrew was quiet and confident, he was the one that brought Peter to Jesus. He was the one that had the little boy that uh, when Jesus asked the disciples testing them, how are we going to feed this crowd? He brings the little boy with fish and bread. He says, well, th this is all we have. This is not enough. But he's, he's quiet and confident. James and John, the sons of thunder, were quick to judge and condemn and, and ask Jesus at one point, can we, call down, can we call, call down condemnation on these people who say bad things? And Bartholomew and Nathaniel was known as an honest man. Matthew, who over and over in his, uh, in his gospel refers to himself as a tax collector or a publican, he knows he's a sinner. These are men that come from different backgrounds, that have different personalities, and these are men who had probably, just before these events, argued about who was the greatest among them. In Luke chapter 22, verse 24 through 27, um, it says, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. 
And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I, meaning Jesus, am among you as one who serves. These men had different personalities, they had different backgrounds, and these men were wholly consumed on themselves. Right? They were worried about themselves. Who was going to sit in positions of power around Jesus when Jesus took over? They were lifting themselves up. They wanted acclaim and recognition. They wanted to lead people. These men had walked with Jesus. They had seen him do amazing things. They had seen him show tenderness and grace to the sinner and speak boldly to the, the Pharisees and the, the lawyers. And the night that Jesus would be betrayed, within 24 hours, being nailed to the cross, they were fighting over who was the greatest among them. Jesus was leaving, but he wasn't leaving them alone. One commentator says that he is leaving the disciples together. He wasn't leaving them alone, but he was leaving them together. But when life experiences and personalities and passions and abilities and gifts could cause them to, be, to fight and to be divided, instead, instead, the miracle that Jesus wanted to show the world was that God helped them to love one another. See, while they had many things to divide them and separate them, they had several key things that united them. They were all sinners, just like everybody in this room. They had all messed up. They had all fallen short. They all loved Jesus. And they ultimately trusted Jesus for salvation. All the things that they could divide, that could divide and separate them in saying, this is how we should do the church in the book of Acts, or this is, this is how we should go forward. What united them was stronger and more powerful, that they were sinners in need of a savior, just as we are. Jesus was leaving, but he was creating a new community that would be recognized by their love for God. And so the New Testament uses several images, right? It describes the church as the family of God, or it describes the church as the body of Christ, right? These are images of, of people that are different and yet being brought together because of Jesus. And the call that Jesus gives the disciples in John chapter 13 to love each other as he has loved them is the same call that he gives to us. It's the same call that he gives to the church. He calls us to love one another just as he is loved. And in a world broken and divided, a world filled with selfishness and hatred and judgment, where every day the news is filled with people arguing with one another and saying how horrible one group or other is. When you see people who are extremely different from one another, truly love one another, that is a powerful testimony of the power of God. That was the testimony of the early church in the book of Acts, and it's a testimony for us. So let's Let's get a little dirty. How does this apply to us, right? So the, the, it, it's easy to, say, easy to say that God has called us to love as he has loved us. And as we go through this, understand that these are things coming out of my own personal life and struggles that I've had that shape how we are supposed to love and my challenges today. So husbands, I'm gonna start with you. 
Husbands, do the lost people that you know know how much you love your wife? Do they know that you love your wife more than your hobbies or your job? When was the last time you took your wife out on a date or just spent time together after the kids had gone to bed with a cup of coffee, just talking and listening? Husbands, when was the last time you looked at your wife with joy because of the beauty of her, of her, how God has made her and been amazed by how God has brought you together? Husbands, your wife is not an object or a possession. She is not to be commanded or taken for granted. She is to be loved and led and washed in the word of God. Husbands, love your wives like Jesus has loved you. Give her your very best. Do not give her your leftovers. Wives, many of you here today may feel forgotten and taken for granted. You sacrifice, you give everything for the family, you put yourself last. Today, you need to know first that you are loved and cherished and precious to God. You really, really are. And you long, we know, I know that you long for your husband to love you and cherish you and be precious to him. Husbands, that's on us. That's in our failings. But wives, let me encourage and challenge you. You have married a sinner. And do not ask your husband to be what only Jesus can be. Jesus gives you your purpose. Jesus gives you meaning, not your husband. Don't ask them to be what only Jesus can be. You married a sinner, and one of the most explosively loving things you can do is to honor and respect him and what you do and say in front of your children and your friends and your coworkers. Wives, love your husbands like Jesus has loved you, graciously offering forgiveness when it's not deserved. Parents, your children are not robots or many adults. They will mess up and sometimes spectacularly mess up. They really will. But be gentle and kind and patient and gracious when you correct them. Do not expect perfection from them, but firmly shepherd and lead them. Recognize that every single child that you have will be different from every other child that's ever lived. We have three kids. Our first two were born and they are polar opposites from each other. And so we thought when Abby came along that she was going to be someplace in the middle, and she's not. She's on a whole nother axis, completely different from the other two. But it's our job as parents to love our children, to know them, to know what their strengths and weaknesses are, to know what, uh, to what makes them sad and what makes them happy, to study them. Parents, love your children like Christ has loved you by pointing them to Jesus, putting no conditions on your love putting no conditions on your love based on their obedience, but being willing to confess and ask for forgiveness for your failings as a parent. That is radically different from what the world sees parenting to be. Children, teenagers, tweens, that you're here today, I know that you are smarter than your parents. Right? You are smarter than your parents. There will come a time, though, there will come a time when you're about 24 or 25 that you'll finally start to realize your parents are actually pretty smart. Really only because they've made all the same mistakes that you're making. Children, you would be amazed 
at how powerful the image of children loving their parents could be. Because what your friends know, whether here at Mount Calvary Christian School or what your uh, friends know in public school, is, is everybody hates their parents. Nobody says good things about the parents. Everybody puts them down and how they, they, they take away their freedoms or they don't see kids that love their parents. That is a powerful testimony of respecting them and listening and obeying even when you don't want to, of being thankful for God for them or caring for them when, when they get older. The world tells you, yells at you that everything is about you, that you should do what uh, feels good, be what you want to be. But Jesus, teens, Jesus has called you to something greater. He's called you to something more profound and he's called you to love your parents as he loves you. All right, I gotta speed up a little bit. And so I'm not stepping on toes fast enough. This was my section of the sermon. I forgot to say that uh, section of the sermon that I titled, Make Everybody Mad, right? As fast as possible. And friends, so take this from a loving heart. Friends, your view on government and COVID are not gospel. The radicalness of the true gospel that Jesus saves, that we are sinners in need of a savior and Jesus has died for us, calls you to love graciously those that are believers and yet may differ from you politically. Friends, Jesus says that the world will know that we are his disciples by our love for one another. But when we look at social media, what do we see? Do we see fighting and and arguing among Christians or do our friends and followers know that how much, who we love, how much we love them more than what we hate. Friends, if another ministry or church or pastor preached the gospel of Christ, let us rejoice, just as Paul rejoices in Philippians chapter 1, verse 15, even if their ministry or methods look different, even if they use a different translation, even if, if, if they do things in ways that we would never be comfortable, if they preach Christ, let us rejoice Friends, let us love other followers of Christ regardless of denomination, color of skin, where they live, the clothes that they wear, where they work, whether they're someone of importance or a nobody in the eyes of the world. Let us love one another as Christ has loved us, where he looked upon each and every one of us and said, you are worth me going to the cross. You've done nothing to earn it. You've been done nothing to be awarded that, that worth, but I have decided that you're worth it. Friends, we love, we live in a world that believes that relationships are only tenable, only lasting if there's 100% agreement along every single crack and fault line that exists in our culture. And this is the true miracle that Jesus is calling the disciples. He said, this is how people will know you if you love one another as I have loved you. This is the true miracle of the family of God and the body of Christ that people of all shapes and sizes and amount of hair on their heads, the all colors and all backgrounds and all walks of life can love one another because they all realize that they are sinners in need of a savior and that Jesus loved them enough to die for them. May our love for Jesus flow generously into our love for one another. We will fail 
We will fail in this room. We will hurt you. We will let you down. We will, we, we will fail. And I long for the day. It makes me long for the day in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, where there will be a great multitude from every nation and every tribe and all peoples and languages standing before the throne, worshiping God. When in heaven, you know, that's, that's part of the beauty of this, of Christians loving one another, is that it's a picture of heaven where it's impossible but in heaven, we will love one another where there will be no more sin and no more death, no more tears or illness, where all things will be made right and there won't be arguing about uh, what is good or what is bad. Love one another. It's difficult. It's messy. It can hurt. And it requires us to think much less of ourselves than we, many of us do. But I have good news. Right? The good news is that you are not alone because every single person in this room is just as big of a failure at this as you are. Nobody else's husband is better or, or wife is better. All of us have failed and fallen short. Each and every one of us are united in the fact that we are sinners and we not only need Jesus for our salvation, we need Jesus every single day because we can't live this life on our own. We can't walk this life and this journey of pursuing him without his strength and without his help. And just as he waits for us to cry out to him for salvation, he waits every day for us to come to him and say, I need you. Walk with me today as we sacrificially and beautifully choose to love others like Jesus loves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, You've loved us in an amazing way. You've loved us more than we can truly fathom and understand in this earth. Lord, because even while we recognize that we're sinners, Lord, we often don't recognize the full depth of our depravity. But God, you still chose to love us. You still chose to love us. You looked upon us when we were dirty and helpless and hopeless, and you said, you are worth me going to the cross. Lord, help us to be amazed by that. Help that amazing and wonder and awe of your love for us flow into the love of others. May we love without condition. May we graciously forgive even when it's not asked. God, you are good. Help us to trust you in all things. Be with us today. It's in your name.